Good morning. So today we are completing a five-week series that we've been in entitled Growing Smaller. Uh, and as we've talked about in this series, the idea of it springs from the increased and hectic pace at which so many of us live as a baseline in our life, right? Like for those of you right now who are going, are we going to go past noon today because we got to get here and then we got to do this this afternoon? This is what I'm talking about, where calendaring becomes a new verb that dominates how any family or organization has to function because we just got so much going on. We got so much going on all the time and we got to make certain that we know who's doing what and who's driving carpool and making certain we don't miss out on activities and making certain our kids can choose what they want to do and making certain that at work we're doing stuff and, and there's just all kinds of pace at which we run. And there's cool parts to that, right? Because there's like all kinds of opportunities to do stuff in this world uh, and we don't want to miss it. And yet there are also difficult parts and flat sides to that. As we've talked about, studies show that we are more stressed than we have ever been before, that we are more anxious about what we're missing out on than ever before. And the good news is, so are our children. They're catching our stress, and they're realizing that they need to be functioning and doing stuff and signed up and involved and getting into college and doing the right things and making sure that everything's happening. And so we're all just running at this pace. And studies are showing that more and more of us are going to bed at night tired, exhausted, and of all the things that are keeping us busy, we don't feel like we're doing any of it particularly well. It's a great way to end your day. So we've asked in this series is like, is this something we need to talk about? And whether you agree with the direction this series has gone, the cool part is that at no point has anyone looked at me going, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Right? Like, no one has sat there and been like, I don't know, I mean, life's just boring. It's like calm, and I just don't have anything to do, and my children don't feel any pressure. Uh, you know, I mean, everyone at some level, in some way, is aware of this increase of pace happening in the world around us. The question that I want us to start this final sermon in this series with is, if that's the true, that we're all aware of this, why don't we just stop? Like, why don't we just stop doing so much? David Brooks wrote a book that I read this summer where he talks some about that, of why it's not that simple. And the book is called The Second Mountain. And in this book, what David Brooks writes about is he thinks that the reason we can't just stop and slow down is because of what he talks of as the hyper-individualism of our culture. The hyper-individualism. That life's about me and what I'm going to do. And we've gotten to a point in our country and in our culture where the right and the, 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 the preeminence of the individual dominates anything else. And part of what I like about Brooks' assessment of this is he doesn't just bash that. He talks about the very real places that comes from. He says that the first half of the 20th century was very different. Society more told people, this is sort of where you fit in into the hierarchy of what's happening. And if you were a white male, that was a really good thing. But if you were a person of color, or if my daughters had been born 70 years ago, it wasn't nearly as good of a thing. You didn't have nearly as many options as today. And Brooks looks at like the poetry and music in the 1950s and 60s, and there's this like declaration of individualism in it. People wanting to break free of the social norms and break free of the expectations and, and saying, I can create my own life. I can, I can forge my own path. I have the right and the ability to do that. And that came out of really good places. And Brooks is clear. This comes out of real, a desire for some really good things. But 
What Brooks talks about is that when the 1960s ended, that, that the movement towards individualism didn't stop, that it's grown more and more common to where in the year 2019 in Austin, Texas, the rights of the individual as we see it becomes all-encompassing. So I can say this is my spirituality and my values and my way of parenting and my truth. And the moment you declare that, once someone goes, what's well, my truth? We're all supposed to go, oh, okay, well, if it's your truth, then that's all that matters, Right? And Brooks says that that's a hyper-individualistic culture. It's been growing for decades. And he says that one of the flip sides of that hyper-individualism is that there's an inherent loneliness that comes with it. Because when it's all about us and no one can tell me how I'm going to live my life and the way I'm going to be and the way I'm going to view this world, we have to create like a castle. We have to create like a moat around our hearts and around our lives going, well, you believe that and I'll believe this. And you stay over there and I'll stay over here. And what that means is, is that we are seeing this and seeing the fruit of this when studies are showing us that we are more urbanized than any point in history, and we're also lonelier than any point in history. We all feel like we're surrounded by people more and more and more, and yet we're not really known by anybody. There's a loneliness that comes with this, and an isolation, a lack of intimacy, Now, you might be going, okay, so why does that feed into us running at a really fast pace all the time and we can't just slow down? Well, Brooks also says that in a hyper-individualistic culture, we also have to start creating our own sense of why our lives are important. Because we no longer get it from God, because it's my spirituality and the way I want to live and my values, and it's no longer in relation to what society says about me. So I have to start creating why is my life important, and one of the most natural places we go is our resume our GPAs, our accomplishments, or the bumper sticker we can put on our car letting everyone know about our children's accomplishment, right? And that these things make us feel like we're somebody. Not for long, just for a brief moment, but they give us a sense of importance of what we or what our family members have done. There's a great quote that he writes about in the second mountain that we're going to bring up here. And he talks about this centrality of accomplishment. He says, in a hyper-individualistic society, people are not measured by how they conform to shared moral code. They are not measured by how fully they have submerged themselves in thick relationships. They are measured by what they or their children have individually achieved. Status, admiration, and receiving likes on social media all follow personal achievement. Researchers at the Harvard Graduate School of Education recently asked 10,000 middle and high school students if their parents cared more about personal achievement or whether they were kind. 80% said their parents cared more about achievement, individual success over relational bonds. And if you were a parent in here like me, I might be uncomfortable about how my own two children would answer that question. We have to determine, and once our achievements start making us feel like we're somebody and important, what that means is that everyone else at some level becomes competition. Even our, our own siblings can become competition. Our friends can become competition. Our friends' children are definitely competition of who's doing what and how we can talk about this because this is how we get a sense that our lives have purpose and meaning. That's why it's not as simple as going, just slow down, because at some level that makes us feel like We're not all that we should be. Into that reality, that hyper-individualistic, hyper-achievement-oriented, that's-my-identity culture, comes the gospel. 
a totally different framework of how we understand life, a totally different way of understanding where worth and value come. As we celebrated Shireen's baptism last week, we talked about that as this celebration for all of us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that this gospel is about that God loves us and says that we are worth something, that we are important, that we are valued, not because of what we do, but because of what God has done. It's a totally different way of understanding where, where worth and value come. Because as Paul writes, through faith, we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. When we have that righteousness, there's no good thing that we do that makes us more important in God's eyes. Nothing that we do makes us more valuable. And nothing that we do that is shameful or bad removes us or separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's a totally different way of understanding worth because it doesn't come in an individual, I'm gonna create my own sense of worth, it's my worth, and I'll create my worth the way I want my worth to be. It comes from our connection with God and declaration of who God says we are. And then all the things we go and do and accomplish are a response to that worth and that value. I think if our hyper-individualistic, hyper-achievement-oriented culture heard that, really heard that, I think like, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they'd be like, that's gospel. That's good news. That's great news. We can live with a freedom beyond proving our own worth because of who God says we are. That's what we want to lean into in this series. That's what the desire has been, is rather than seeing our worth coming from growing thinner and stretched thinner and moving faster, it's about how do we grow with a kind of depth and purpose to, as Craig Barnes says, receive the life God has for us rather than achieve it. You can't receive a life if you're an autonomous being not connected. But we as people of faith realize that life is not found in achievement. We receive life that God has. So we've tried over these five weeks to say as we start this calendar year, this school year, how do you receive the life and the call God has for you? We're going to bring the scripture up that's been guiding us as we go throughout this, it's from 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to read this together one more time as we finish the series today. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel, and he said, here I am, and ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears of it tingle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, we would hear your gospel today, your good news, and it would change us forever, liberate us. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. All right, so what we've done in this series is said, we want to talk about how do we receive this life from God. And we said that this doesn't happen randomly, but rather we need to posture ourselves. We need to position ourselves with certain patterns that should dictate our calendar and dictate our schedule. And these are patterns that we talk about in terms of three core behaviors or three core disciplines here at Covenant. The first of those is solitude. The second is community. And the third is service. We talked about this this morning at our first service. I had one of our high school students come up and go, where did you guys come up with those terms? Which is a great question. And we didn't vote on it, like in a room somewhere. What we did is we said, the way you study scripture is not just memorizing individual verses, but you look for patterns in the scripture. And these patterns of how people have received the life God has for them, you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see it over and over and over again. This is the way that Jesus lives his life. And we see this in how Samuel uh, lives his life in this passage. It's patterns that we want to imitate because they're biblical to receive a call, to receive the life God has for us. The first, as I said, is that we need to have solitude. And as we talk about each of these, see how countercultural they are in an individualistic society. Now, you might be looking at solitude going, the problem is individualism. Why are we starting with being alone? But it's not being alone. It's being how we're connected to God. It's about this connection. It's about having a, 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 an alive spiritual life. It's about being connected with our creator. So that we have the kind of prayer lives that, like Samuel, we learn to hear the voice of God. Your prayer life and your spiritual life is moving in a good direction if you listen to God more than speak at God. That's a good goal to have. Because God is speaking to us, but most of the time what we're going is, I need this, and my kids need this, and why won't you work this out, and my neighbors need this, and our country needs this. Now, it's good to let God know what's on your heart, but we are supposed to listen to God, to hear God, and Samuel has to learn to hear the voice of God. So we've tried to help with that and say, that's one of the things that no matter who you are, this needs to be a part of your life. Connection with God. But secondly, it's not just about connection with God. We said the second behavior is community. And community is our connection with one another. None of us are spiritual lone rangers. Samuel can't figure out what's going on here without the help of Eli. So who are the Elis in your life? Who are the people that you in a hyper-individualistic society, sort of like Samuel, turn over authority to some others and say, what do you hear God saying? What questions do you think I should be asking? What do you think God might be stirring in that? It connects us and gives them input into our life. This is different than people that you like go to concerts with maybe or go to movies with or watch sporting events with. I mean, that can be good and those are good things, but I'm talking about people who know how to pray for you, that know you, that you take the chance of saying the truth to them when they ask how they can pray for you. And there's a vulnerable part to that, but there's how we learn and grow. We are not autonomous beings. We are connected to one another. So who are the Elis in your life? Solitude, community, and the third is service. You recognize here that when God speaks to Samuel, he doesn't say, Samuel, now that you've learned to hear my voice, I've got the coolest life in the world for you to go live. But he says, I'm about to do something new in Israel that will make the ears of anyone who hears of a tingle. Samuel's life is going to find meaning because it's not just all about him and his little orbit that he's living, and he's the center of the universe but that he becomes part of a much bigger story of serving those in the world around him. There is a joy in giving and serving that cannot be found any other way. And so whatever call God's going to have on your life, whatever life you're called to receive, some piece of it is going to be about serving others and serving something larger than yourself. Solitude, community, service. No matter what age of stage of life you are, no matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, we're saying that these are the foundations to build our schedules around 
and to build our values around and our practices around to receive the life God has for us. The question I want to finish with is this. If that's the case, how do we actually start doing it? How do we actually start living this stuff out? Because as human beings, there is no shortage of ideas that are trying to tell us what we should do. The problem is the actual execution of those ideas, right? Every church I work at has strategic plans. Most of them go in a binder on a shelf somewhere and just stay there and we feel good we had a strategic plan. The problem isn't having the plan. The problem is the executing of the plan, right? How many times have you as a a, a person maybe looked at your spouse or looked at your kids and say, hey, this time it's going to be different, right? Yeah. I'm not even going to ask you how many times it actually was different. How many times did the patterns actually change? How many times have we had politicians who promised this change and it turned to be more about bluster than about policy? right? And things never really change. We experiment in this every year. Every year on January 1st, we make New Year's resolutions. Now, we're not even three quarters of the way through the year yet, but I want to conduct a quick survey here. Raise your hand if this year you made New Year's resolutions. Just raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you what they are. I'm not going to try to embarrass you. All right, so 90% of you didn't. That actually proves my point. You're like, yeah, it's not going to work anyway, right? That, that's what I'm trying to say. Now, of the, the three, raise your hands higher if you did. I, I'm glad you did. I think it's a good thing. I think there's less of you now that have done this. All right, no, keep up. This is a good thing. Now, keep your hand up and be honest. If you can, off the top of your head, remember what your resolution even was. Okay, good. All right, we lost a few, but we're doing okay overall for the three of you left. Uh, for the three of you left, how many of you have been faithfully, daily, live, weekly living out those resolutions? All right, one. Kate, if you'd like to come preach the rest of the sermon, you obviously know something that the rest of us don't, and you're welcome to come do it. Now, this is my point, right? It's no shortage of good intentions or good ideas. It's the follow-through we struggle with. It's the execution that we struggle with. And so the question might seem obvious on the surface, but it's really important. How do we actually change? Because my fear is we're all going to sit there right now going, yeah, we're so busy and life's so stressful and we need to kind of change that. And yeah, we're going to like grow smaller. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. And six months from now, we're going to be going, I'm so stressed out and I'm so busy and everything's happening. My kids are stressed out. I can't wait for summer to come so we can just chill out. And that's not a way to live. How do we actually change so that six months from now, our lives are in a different place? It's not a shortage of good ideas. It's a shortage of follow-through. Todd Bolsinger writes about this in his book, Canoeing the Mountains. And in it, he says that there's no shortage of good intentions and good ideas. He says the problem is habits eat strategy for breakfast. (laughs) Habits eat strategy for breakfast. When you look at someone like, no, this time I'm really going to change. It's going to really be different. It usually does for like four days. And then we start drifting back to our default, right? And every marriage and everyone's spiritual life and every company and every church has a default that you, without real intentionality, you just slowly drift back to the default. Habits eat strategy for breakfast. The cool part about that is maybe this is the right way to end this series Because if we can change our habits, maybe that becomes the key to how we actually are in a different place six months from now, building better habits. 
This week I talked about this with a downtown men's Bible study um, at this church that, that I teach twice a month. And we were talking to some of the guys about this. And two different guys wrote me about a book from that Bible study that talks about this principle. And I think if two different people who don't know each other send me that, that means the Holy Spirit wants all of you to hear it as well. And they said a book that helped them with this idea of understanding habit building and change is by a book by a guy named James Clear called Atomic Habits. And what James Clear says in that is that if you want to uh, change your life with a power, with almost an atomic power, that habits are the right thing to do. Habits do eat strategy for breakfast. So we've got to change our habits. But we also, to do so, have to change them at an almost uh, atomic level, a very small level. And so the question is not, how do I have these big ideas, right? If you leave here today going, that's right, we're going to do these patterns, we're going to do them in my life, I'm going to do them as a family, we're going to change the patterns we're doing, you're probably not going to change over time. The question that James Clear says is, what's the one small step that you can take? What's the one thing that you can do? You're like, yeah, but I want to do 20 things. Don't do 20 things. Edit out 19 of them. What's the one thing this week you can commit to? And that maybe that's the key to how change starts happening, right? What's one small step you can take? And it's not about like the whole notion of like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step towards being a good person. That means nothing. That means nothing. I'm talking about in these very clear patterns of posturing our lives, solitude, community, service, one small step you can take in just one of these areas that you leave here today going, I've got my thing. I've got the one thing. I'm clear about the one thing I'm going to do that all of us, no matter who we are, should have that. Maybe it's in solitude. Maybe today your one thing that you're going to leave here with is saying, I am going to find a way to wake up, and for the first 10 minutes when I wake up, I'm going to spend 10 minutes trying to pray versus turning on my phone and getting fired up about the headlines for the day and starting my day all riled up. Maybe that's the one thing, or, or maybe I'm going to buy a new devotional book, or maybe I'm going to sign up for the church's online devotional form, and I'm just going to try that. I'm going to just do this one thing this week, and then next week I'm going to take one more step. Maybe it's in community. Maybe you need to sign up for a small group, or maybe your small group needs to figure out how to get and prioritize this on your calendar because you're all so busy doing stuff that you just need to actually nail some times down and hold to it. And that's your one thing this week. Or maybe your one thing is saying, when my small group meets this week, or my Bible study, or I meet with my mentor and they ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to actually tell the truth. That's my one thing, is I'm going to tell the truth when someone asks me how they can pray for me. That, that's the only thing I'm committing to. Or maybe it's in service. Maybe it's about getting involved with the church's day of service in the beginning of November when we're going to send hundreds of people out to work with our mission partners. Maybe it's working with our mission team and seeing our new online platform we just developed for how you can get involved in the city, um, some really cool things that our mission team is doing. But saying, I'm going to do this one thing, or we as a small group are going to do this one thing to serve with our mission partners. Everybody should leave here really clear about this one thing. This is how habits change. This is how our life will be different six months from now, is taking these clear, very small steps. This is a principle we see, for example, in Dave Ramsey and his Financial Peace University. Have you ever taken that? He talks about the exact same thing about how we get out of debt. He says most Americans have multiple debts they live under, and when they become serious about getting out of debt, they start with the biggest, most debilitating debt. 
which they want to get free of. And he says that makes sense, but he says it's totally the wrong way to go. And, and, and statistically, you won't ever get out of debt that way. He says start with the smallest one, start with the easiest one, and then build momentum and then keep building momentum so that like an athlete, you're training, when you get to the biggest debt, you can climb that mountain and get out of underneath that, that mountain of debt. It's what Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great when he talks about the flywheel effect. And he says just focus you and your organization on the one essential step in front of you. Don't worry about all the other things. Just take that step and build momentum as you go. And as you go and build momentum, the the organization and life becomes easier and easier and easier. But focus on the one thing. The one thing for me this week is figuring out how my crazy calendar can work with our small group. That's my, that's my big goal for this week, is to do that, because I need those people in my life. What, what is your step? Because make no mistake about it, that's the right way to end this series. We're not ending it with a big story or a big emotional thing. We're going to end it with growing smaller. What's the one thing to do? And if we take that seriously and keep taking the process of working, realizing that life is a marathon, not a sprint, there is a good chance in six months we could wake up from now in a different place than where we are today, rather than collapsing under the weight of our own ideas. What's your thing to grow smaller towards, to see what God has in store? Let's pray. Lord, we do ask this day, this week, that you would lead us, that you would help us to grow smaller in the steps that we are called to take, that we might see real change and transformation happen in our lives. Lead us, empower us, guide us. We pray to receive the life that you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.